We're going to be in Romans chapter 12 again. Romans chapter 12. We're going to end the chapter um, today by looking at verses 9 through 21. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 through 21. We're going to pick up where uh, Gunnar left off last week. Let's start with verse 9. It says, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Lord, bless the reading of your word this morning. We ask that you would just help us to hear from your Holy Spirit, that these would not be my words, but be yours. May our hearts be open and attentive to what you have for us today. We give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I'm going to pick up today talking about this passage. Before we actually get into it, I want to kind of look at where Gunner left us last week. He had left us with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And that's important because Romans, as it, as it opens up and where we find ourselves today, is kind of a, 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 an, a commentary. It's a, it's, a, it's a much more broad explanation of what's going on in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Um, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 starts and says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then, and then there's the important part that Gunnar pointed out last week. It doesn't stop there. It goes on into verse 10. And it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained, has prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Now, what, what's going on in here? It's the same basic way he's laid out Romans. You see, Romans, the first 11 chapters of it were doctrinal. In other words, how do we get saved? What is it that, it, that, that happens in our lives as a result of faith in Jesus Christ that changes in our lives? And so the first half of Romans, 1 through 11, is very doctrinal. It's, it's the basics of how do we become a Christian. But here's the thing. Because we're not called to make converts were called to make disciples matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20 says go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe everything i've commanded you and lo i am with you always even at the end of the age so the point is not to just make someone converted to christ and and make them a christian we're all supposed to grow in our faith and become disciples of Jesus Christ, followers of Christ. And so as a result of that, things change in our life. And there is a way that we now live our lives as a result of what has happened and what's been described in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. And so now he comes up into chapter 12 and starting last week as it started with, hey, now we, we offer your submit yourselves as a sacrifice um, of worship to God. 
And, and then what does that look like within the church? Well, today in verses 9 through 21, he's going to pick up with that. And, and he's going to, and basically his theme is that, that Christians' lives as, as followers of Christ, our lives are supposed to reflect one thing to the world. And that one thing is love. Now, unfortunately, in our world, we've kind of lost track of exactly what love is. Um, and, and, and many times, too many times, it's, it's kind of we focus on, 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 on you know, we kind of know what love is. But we can say, I love food and I love my wife. And we use the same word for both. And they definitely do not mean the same thing. Um, and in some cases, love has more of a selfish meaning than really what the scripture gives it, which is a very selfless meaning. And so that's what we kind of want to dig into today and look at. And it's really important to remember here that the way that he put Romans together is that he put the doctrinal part first. It's important that, you know, you don't come and try to it's this is not a list of do this, do this, do this, do this. And this is what makes you a Christian. It's not of, because we are saved by our faith in Jesus Christ, but then we're saved to do these good works and to love. And if you get it backwards, you end up with what the, a church in London recently did. There's this church in London that I read about this week, and I put church in quotation marks because they're starting. They, they have this church in London, and they're trying to open it up in New York and in, in L.A. and all these other places. But here's their thing with this church. They come in, and they sing songs, and they have a little philosophical uh, story. And they don't believe in God at all. It's an atheist church. Um, but that's what happens if you take the doctrinal part out of it. So this is doctrine. This is our faith living itself out. But it is based on our faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to, before, before we get into this, I want to read 1 Corinthians 13. Because the, it's kind of parallel to what Paul is trying to do in Romans. And in 1 Corinthians 13, we have... Uh, the great exposition, you've probably heard it read at almost every wedding. I know I read at least parts of it in the weddings that I do. And, uh, it's, it's all about love and it's where, and it's kind of, you'll see a lot of parallels to what we're going to look at today. In first Corinthians chapter 13, Paul starts off and he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And here's what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. Love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will be they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I've been fully known. But these three remain. But these now faith, hope and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. And so all throughout what he's done here in first Corinthians, he's he's talking about the gifts, your gifts. Uh, and, and we talked last week. And that's why I say it's parallel, because last week, what did we look at? The first thing that Paul talked about after he talked about 
submitting yourself as a spiritual sacrifice to God, he says, you're each given a gift. And so when we come to church, you have something to contribute to the body of Christ. I have something to contribute to the body of Christ. And yours is not the same as mine. And mine is not the same as yours. But together, we make up this unity in the body of Christ. But guess what? While we all may have different gifts like that, there's one thing we are all commanded to have. And that's love. And that's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, this is what love is. It's selfless. It gives of itself for the other person. And by the way, it's the greatest of all the gifts. And in addition to what you're supposed to be doing of using your individual gift to serve God, we each come and we love each other within the body of Christ. This follows exactly what Christ boiled down the entire teaching, the entire Christian life to. When the disciples were... were uh, we're looking for, you know, what is the greatest commandment? What is it that um, that that you say of all the commands in the Old Testament? What is it that Jesus, what, what do you say we're supposed to be doing with our lives? And, and Jesus boiled it down to this in Matthew 22, 37. Matthew 22, 37. Um, the lawyer had asked him a question to test him. And he said, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And this is what Jesus said. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second's like to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So Jesus here boils down the entire life of the follower of God to two things. Love God. That's Romans 1 through 11. How do we get a relationship with God? And then love others. And that's what we're doing here. And so we now enter into this study of how, what does it mean to love other people. And loosely, I think it breaks down into kind of two, um, two focuses here. The first focus is verses 9 through 13 of loving others within the body of Christ, within the church itself. And like I say, loosely because there's some overlap. But verses 14 through 21 then go into a discourse on loving others outside of the body of Christ and those who are maybe not are, are not Christians. And so that's the way we're going to look at it today. So we go into verses 9 through 13 and loving those within the church. He starts off and he says, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Um, now, why does he start off with this? He starts off with this because... If you can't love someone in in an absolute and true way, then nothing else you do matters. If we're called to love people, it has to be honest love. It's not, you you can put on a front. I mean, we put on a front every day, right? When somebody asks you how you're doing and you just say, fine. Are you always feeling fine? No. You might be wanting to hurt someone. You might be feeling miserable because you, you are sick. You might be... Um, you know, you might have a thousand things going wrong, but the answer is fine. Is that kind of sometimes though the way our love is for people? Oh yeah, I love the body of Christ. Do you really? Are you truly loving and caring about and trying to serve? Because that's what love is according to 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, kind, gentle, all those other things. Are you trying to serve those within the body of Christ? So love is true. But then when we think of truth, he says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. There's two things that we know about God that the Bible says God is. The first one is God is love. We know that. 
But there's a second aspect to God and his love, and that is God is holy. That means without sin. God is righteous. And so in order to be truly loving, we also have to love in purity. So, you know, God loves us, but does he love our sin? No, he doesn't. He accepts us, but he also, he, he gives us the power to change our life. He forgives us for our sin, and he had to send a, pun, a, a sacrifice in Jesus Christ to pay for that sin because he's so holy. And our love is supposed to be the same way. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So we love in truth, and we love in purity. And so when we come to church, we accept people where they're at, but we're also trying to build up one another to not stay where they're at. We're trying to help people become more and more like Jesus Christ and less and less committed to the sin that is in their life. So we love in truth and we love in purity. And he goes on from there. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. And then he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. What is he saying here? He's saying that love serves fellow believers. Think back to what 1 Corinthians 13 said. That love right there, and the reason why you hear it in so many weddings is because when you get married, what do you think love is? It's like, oh man, I have this great feeling about this person, and I feel all gushy towards her, and I want to marry her because she makes me feel good, and I like kissing her, and, and it just I like holding her hand, and I get these butterflies in my stomach every time I see her, and so that's what we have this feeling of what love is. And then, you know, if you can make it past five years, seven years, ten years... You know, some of you have far, far more than I do, but I can guarantee I know at 17 years, I understand a little bit more of what really selfless serving of another person is than I did at 21 when I got married and said, oh, I love her and I want to get married to her. Um, and so that's what he's saying here, that love is about serving other believers be devoted to one another in brotherly love. This is a really interesting, it's the same word. We have a city named after it, Philadelphia, um, that is the city of brotherly love. And it's this commitment to each other to care about each other. First uh, John chapter four, verses 19 through 21. Of course, first John, we studied it when me and Beth first came here. And, and, and it's all about John's whole theme is just love the brothers, love each other. And he says in first John chapter four, he says, we love Because he first loved us. If someone says I love God and hates his brother. He's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen. Cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. That one who loves God should love his brother also. You know we can't. Basically he's starting this by. He's continuing this by saying. You know you're supposed to love each other in truth and purity. And that means to serve each other. And when we come to church. It should be the place where we reach out to each other and look for ways to serve each other and care about the people around us. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, not lagging behind the diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now, sometimes even in the best of circumstances, do you get tired of doing things? You know, we, you know hopefully you're doing something at your job that you enjoy doing, but don't you get tired of going to work sometimes? That's why we take vacations. You know, I get really tired of driving an hour down to Imperial Beach and an hour back up here. I get tired of sitting in meeting after meeting after meeting, but I still love my job. But you can get tired of doing some of those things all the time, day after day after day. And it's the same way with our love. It's the same way with how we treat, treat each other. And if you're, 
You know, unfortunately, sometimes when we're doing the right thing, it can become tedious. And so he says, you know, don't don't quit. Don't be lagging behind and diligent. You know, be diligent to keep doing it. Keep on doing it because that's the only way you're going to. What happens that first time you let yourself off of doing something? I like to run, but let's say, you know, it's after I let myself not run one day because I'm like, oh, I'm too tired. You know, I got too much to do at work. I I don't want to get up that extra 30 minutes. Let's just sleep an extra 30 minutes, get to work for the first meeting and just skip running today. Well, guess what? It's easier to do it the next day. And then the weekend comes and it's like, oh man, you know what? I want to sleep the weekend. So I'm not going to run the weekend either. And then it becomes easier to say it. And all of a sudden you're looking back and going, wow, I haven't exercised in a couple of weeks. Well, it's the same way with loving people. And you can come to church with all the right attitude and motivations for a while and be like, you know, I'm part of the body of Christ. And it's about taking care of other people. And all, after a while, it's like, you can find yourself saying, you know what? It's time for me to get taken care of. When it, I, I don't feel like caring about other people today. I just want to come and get fed for myself. But then you find yourself doing it once, twice, three times. And all of a sudden, it's your habit of not loving people really the way that God wants us to. And so he says, be diligent to it. Produce, it produces great energy. But here's the thing. The energy to keep on doing it isn't coming from other people. Because guess what? When you love others, sometimes they're not the most loving. And it's, it's really easy to love someone if you're loving them and then they're giving it back, right? You know, that's what I try to tell people in a marriage. In a perfect marriage, when I'm doing marriage counseling for people and they come in and they start talking about, well, she's not giving me what I need and he's not giving me what I need. And I look at them and say, well, okay, well, guess what? Marriage isn't about you getting everything you want. It's about you serving the other person if you really understand what love is. And in a perfect marriage, though, the husband's trying to serve the wife and give her everything that she needs. But then guess what? The wife's trying to serve the husband and give her everything, him everything that he needs, she the everything that she needs. And guess what? All of a sudden, you have two people who are spending all their time doing everything they can to please the other person, and it creates a perfectly happy marriage. It's never going to happen perfectly. But that's the goal, and that's the point. Well, unfortunately, is everyone like that in the church? No. We're human beings. We fail. We're sinners. We're saved, but we're sinners still. And so when you come to church and you're giving and you're serving and you're loving, sometimes you may not meet with all the love and the service in return that you think you should because we're human beings and we fail to do that. And so if you gain, if you're trying to gain your, your energy from other people to keep doing what you're called to do, you're going to fail every single time. But what does he say here? Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit. Because why? Because we serve other people? No. Yes, that's what love is. It's serving others. But it's because we serve the Lord. The Lord is the one who's never going to fail us. The Lord is the one whose love is never going to return to us void. And so if we keep ourselves devoted on God and focused on serving him, then our service to others comes naturally. So that's the way we focus our service. You know, I can devote a lot of energy to a lot of things. I like to eat. So I and Beth is a great cook and she's a trained chef. So we actually I enjoy eating and trying new things. So last night I spent time and effort to go out to a packed crowd at this at the food festival thing out in San Diego just so I could eat. But how many times do I put that same amount of energy and effort towards serving God, towards loving others? And I ask myself that question, and sometimes I find myself falling very short. 
And so we need to be devoting our energy and our efforts on loving others, especially those that are at church. But then he goes on from verse 11 and he says, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. You know, sometimes if, 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 you're, if, if, you're not, if our focus isn't right and it gets off of the Lord, we're going to lose sight of the fact that serving him is joyful. And the joy doesn't come from the circumstances. Look what he says there, rejoicing in hope, even while you're persevering in tribulation. Now, I don't know about you, but tribulation doesn't sound very fun. We take joy not because of the circumstances, but because of Christ. Um, there was a little song that we used to, I used to sing growing up. You know, the joy of the Lord is your, my strength, and so on and so forth. And, and you know, I, it, it's easy to say those words. It's very hard to actually apply those in your life. And I started thinking about, okay, where, where is that actually at in the scripture? I want to see where that comes from. And in Nehemiah chapter 8 is where you actually find that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And, and I want to look at that passage just for a couple seconds today. It says, what was happening here in Nehemiah chapter 8 is the people of Israel had just returned from Babylon under Ezra uh, the priest and under Nehemiah. And they had completed building the wall around Jerusalem. And... Um, now, as the wall is complete, they're having a kind of a celebration for it. They're actually going into the festival of booths. And uh, Ezra had pulled the word of God out and had started reading it. And the, and, and the thing was, they hadn't read the Torah, the, the, their scripture, in years. It was probably covered in dust somewhere. Most of them didn't even know what it was. They'd never heard it. And as they were reading this... This is what happens. Ne- uh, verse 9 says, Then Nehemiah, who is the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were eating, weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, drink, some portions, and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. What had happened was they heard the Bible preached. They heard the word preached, and they hadn't been doing it. And it caused them grief, and they were sad about it because they had failed to follow any of God's instructions. And, and, and just like the first part of Romans showed us, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We can't keep all of his law. And they had failed miserably. That was the whole reason they were in Babylon. And so it caused them all of this grief. And then what was the, what was the words that Ezra gave them? He said, don't be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Our joy doesn't come from the fact that we're able to keep God's word perfectly. Or that we're able to love others perfectly. Or that we're able to be the epitome of what it means to be a Christian. Or that, we're, or that, we're not, or that we have an easy life and that no, no trouble is in our life. It comes from the fact that we have Jesus Christ in our life and that he's the one that gives us that strength. And that when we keep our eyes focused on him, just like he said in verse 11, that that's when we have that joy in our life. And that's why he ends this this little phrase right here by saying devoted to prayer. Where does that power and that strength come from? Where does that joy come from? It's only going to come in that relationship with God. As we're devoting ourselves to prayer, to listening to him, to talking to him, to developing that relationship to him. In Romans chapter 5, going back to, uh, uh, going back to Romans chapter 5, 
in verses 2 through 4, he's already kind of talked about this when he says in Romans chapter 5, 2 through 4, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And so God uses even bad circumstances to drive us back to himself in prayer so that as we learn to rely on him and on his strength in our life, guess what? We learn to trust him more. And so when those circumstances come into our life, he can then take us through even worse circumstances the next time. And now we trust him even more. And slowly but surely, it gets to the point where our hope isn't in money. Our hope isn't in family. Our hope isn't even it isn't in a job. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And you can take all those other things away. And just like Job, he was able to stand there. And even though all those other things had gone away and yeah, he he faced some doubts. But he's able to look and say that his faith and his hope and his trust was still in God. And that's what gives us hope. And then he goes on in verse 13 and he says, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Now, this is a this is a hard one um, for me uh, when you talk, think about hospitality. I know Gunnar mentioned it last week. Um, so. Here we are. He's commanded us. We're supposed to love each other in the church. And so when people come into the church, the way that we show them that we are believers is, is that we, we, we love them with the love of Christ. And, and, we, and, and we put aside our differences to care about other people. And, and it's not about my desires and how the color I want the walls or the color I want the carpet or the, or the music that I like or anything else. But it becomes about you know, how can I serve other people within the church? And and then as we do that, we always keep our focus on Christ because he's the one that gives us our strength. And he's the one that gives us our hope, not other people. And now he comes down to this last thing. He says, contributing to the needs of the saints, because ultimately when people see the church, you know, you can put on your sign we're we're Valley Baptist Church. And that's supposed to mean that people can look at us and say, oh, well, yeah, they're Christians. They follow Jesus Christ. But when Jesus told people, when he told his disciples how people were going to know that they were followers of him, it wasn't because they had a name on a building. John 13, 35 says this. John 13, 35 is Jesus's when he tells his disciples how people are going to know that they follow him. He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So people aren't going to know we're Christians just by the fact that we have a sign on a building. They're going to know we're Christians because when they walk through these doors, hopefully they find a group of people that cares about the problems of other people. That cares about the fact that this person has a need that needs to be met, whether it's physical, mental, spiritual. And that we have a group of people who cares about that need and cares enough to gather around that person in prayer and love and concern. And if it's material, we try to meet it. If we're, if it's, if it's physical, we try to pray for, you know, whatever it is that we care about the needs of the people and we demonstrate our love for each other. And that's how we show the world that we're different. And it's when a church when people walk into a church and see this faction and this faction and this group wants one thing and this group wants another, that's exactly what Jesus is speaking against and saying that that's not demonstrating true Christian love. That's not demonstrating what it means to follow Christ. And so the church should be a primary source of help 
or other shortfalls. And, it, and, it, and we show, that's how we show our love for each other. Um, now, hospitality here, this takes it out a little further because hospitality is literally, it means, it has a primary meaning of a love for strangers. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody comes to my door and knocks on it and says, hey, I'm a fellow believer and I need a room to stay in, I'm probably going to say, hey, there's a La Quinta up the road. Um, it, you know, we, I, and we live in a different time. But ultimately, how open are we to opening up our lives, to opening up ourselves and helping other people, especially within the body of Christ. And I think many times we use the excuses that, you know, it is a different time. And, and yeah, we do have a different culture and everything else. But um, and, and it is difficult. I like things the way I like them. And I'm kind of, you know, I like my house the way I like it. And sometimes it's easier not to have people over. It's easier not to kind of put yourself out there and, and let your life be more of an open book and have people in and out and stuff. But we're called to do that as believers. In Matthew 25, 40, Jesus says, The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Elsewhere he says that people had entertained angels unaware. You can, Jesus says, when you do this for other people, it's just like you're doing it to me. And how many times... Have we kind of pushed away people with needs and not opened up ourselves to be able to try to meet those needs when we could have? Um, and, it, and, and basically, if you read this the way Christ is saying it, it's kind of like pushing Christ away. And it's not showing the love that he's called us to, to, to show towards fellow believers. Now, that's the first part. Now, the interesting thing that happens here is that all those verses we just read... And uh, there, even though they show up as kind of commands here, uh, let love abhor what is evil, cling to what's good, be devoted to one another, give preference. Those aren't really they aren't in the imperative voice in the Greek. They're actually participles. So it just says clinging to what's good, devoting yourself to what's fair. It, they're just statements of, of, of fact of what's happening. Um, now, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be translated as imperatives. They should. But grammatically what he does here is now he kind of switches and from 14 to 21 he actually has a a list of imperatives where he's actually kind of giving commands do this do this do this and the point is not to say hey those other things don't worry about them the point is to show that his focus is as christians we of course we should be loving the brothers and loving people within the church but now i'm going to tell you to do something that's really difficult and is kind of my whole point of what love is really all about. And so now he kind of switches his voice up and he's going to go into something that's much harder. And now he talks about loving those outside the church. Because think about it. In a church setting, hopefully, if everybody on a Sunday or whenever we get together or however we interact with each other is, is coming into it with the attitude of, man, my, my job in life is to serve and love the body of Christ. Well, then guess what? It gets really easy to love fellow believers. One of the greatest things about Valley that I've found is just the way that we get along and we care about other people. And, and honestly, I've felt such love and concern. We had our baby and the church was so awesome with bringing food and everything. I mean, I've never seen that before. That, that is one thing that sets our church apart as it should. But Paul doesn't leave it at that. That'd be easy if that was all he said. 
But now he comes down to verse um, to verse 14 and he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as depends on you, be at peace with them. Never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this is a lot harder. Now, he says, take that same love you have for people in the church. Now, walk outside the church and start giving it to your enemies and to those people at work that mistreat you and to your boss and to everybody else that you deal with. That's much harder to do. And so he starts with bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Um, The interesting thing here, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and 6, and all that passage in there, Matthew and Luke, Jesus, the way that he describes in the Sermon on the Mount, which is his his, his message of, of what the kingdom looks like being lived out through a disciple of Jesus's life, when he comes to Matthew chapter 5, he, it, it has a lot of the same sentiments. And so he says in Matthew 5, 43 through 47, he says, You've heard it said that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same thing. And so Jesus himself says, we're supposed to love those who are enemies and do good to them. That's a hard thing to do. Um, and it then it and, and bless and don't curse them. Um, you know, when somebody does something to me that is negative, my first response might not be a blessing, but it should be. Um, and this is well, where God working inside of our lives and letting him change our lives it causes us to be able to give that blessing back instead of that curse on onto those who are persecuting us. Um, it goes on in verse 15, and it kind of looks like he changes focus, but he doesn't really. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep remember this can be and the reason i said that there's some overlap between people in the church because sometimes we can say see these same things whether they're saved or unsaved and i think what he's saying here is is two two separate things weep with those who weep rejoice with those who rejoice isn't it easy sometimes for it's easy to feel sympathy a lot of times if someone's going through a rough spot if if you know of somebody who just lost a loved one it's it, most of us hopefully could feel sympathy for that person but i think it's even harder and it's interesting that he puts this first rejoice with those who rejoice it's harder sometimes to look at that person at work who got that promotion that you think you deserved and look at them and say you know what congratulations you you deserve that and really mean it and that i think is the context behind this Not only are we supposed to have sympathy with people who need our sympathy and deserve our sympathy, but we're supposed to rejoice with those who get good things that happen to them when maybe we think those good things should have been happening to us. But we're told to rejoice with them no matter the circumstances. So we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. 
And then he goes on from there and he says, be of the same mind toward one another. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. And that's why I say, you know, sometimes I think he was talking about those outside the church to rejoice with them and to weep with them. But now he says that's also supposed to be towards showing towards your brother. Be of the same mind towards one another. And then he says, don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Basically, this is saying treat everyone the same without regard to life status. Um, and, and whether it's outside the church or in the church, don't sometimes we start to. Maybe you see the guy on the side of the road that you don't know his circumstances, but, you know, he, he may he probably homeless and 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 and, you know, you do you sometimes try to avoid him or avoid that situation or avoid that area of town or how much do we really love other people in those circumstances? How much, you know, do we start to feel the other thing he says here is do not be haughty in mind. That even if we don't have that situation, that we can get to the point where we start looking at a person like that or we look at someone else and say, wow, I, man, I'm, I, 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 uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little better than them because I have an education because I've got a job because I, I, don't, I don't have those addictions in my life that have driven me to that point. And it's easy for us to start feeling conceited about what we have and who we are when really at the foot of the cross all of us have nothing and all of us are just sinners and 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 by god's grace we've experienced his love and his salvation and so we're supposed to treat anyone everyone this way the same inside and outside the church with the same equality of status and treatment you know jesus specifically spoke to this um in a parable in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. And it's interesting what he uses here. And he says uh, in Luke 18, 9 through 14, he tells the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And you have to remember the tax collectors at that time, he's speaking to Jewish audience and to the Jews, the tax collector is the worst of the worst. He's scum. He, he works for the Roman government. He can, he can take whatever money he wants. He's a thief. He's a liar. He's a low down, no count, no good. The, the Pharisee, however, he's he's the man. He wears the you know he's he he tithes everything and makes sure everybody knows it. He walks around with his head in the clouds and he's great at what he does and everybody respects him because he has degrees and he 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 can read and he, he has everything that we would. He's got the PhDs and the and the honor. And this is what Jesus said. And he also told this parable in, in Luke eighteen nine to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified, Rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And maybe we need to remind ourselves today that what humility is and that love has to be undergirded by humility about who we are and our place in God's order. Verse 17 goes on and says, never pay back evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, this is a hard one. You know, peace is an expression of love. It, um, and 
now this is talking not nations and wars and things like that. That's Gunner's going to get into more of that later on as we go in through Romans probably. But this is um, this is really an individual thing. This is you go out into the world and guess what? Are there difficult people in the world? Absolutely. There are some people who are really, really hard to get along with. They, they're the kind of people that cut you off in the traffic lane. And there are people who 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 like to um, make trouble for you at work and take credit for what you do. And I mean, there's a whole lot of negative, bad people in this world. Let's just be honest. But guess what? We're called as Christians to love those people in a way that we try to live at peace with them and make peace between them in situations but the, and as far as it pertains to us, some things are out of our control. But that's why he says, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You see, we, yes, there are circumstances that are out of our control. But if you think about it, a lot of times, sometimes we can make situations worse. Because what happens when somebody says something to you that you don't like? Our first response is not, oh, I'm sorry, thank you for that. Let me figure out how I can fix myself. The first response is, really? You think that? Okay, well, this is what I think. And it's a little bit more negative and a little bit heavier than what was just said. And then that person, do they respond back in kind? No. They're going to respond back up here. And all of a sudden, you have a huge argument. You have a fight. You have people who can't get along. And the Bible says, as Christians, that's not supposed to be us. We're supposed to be the peacemaker. We're supposed to be the one that can come into the situation and try to, yes, a lot of times back off even if it means that it makes us look like the loser not or look like the one that gets walked on it's more important to try and keep the peace uh, that's why in galatians 6 9 and it's not and it's not hard, it's not easy to do in galatians 6 9 it says let us not lose heart in doing good for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary and colossians 4 5 says conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders making the most of the opportunity. And the reason I read that is because of this. You see how it words it there. It says never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Now that phrase doesn't make a lot of sense there. But I think what it's saying is. Is that there are people watching you. Everywhere you, you work. Everybody you interact with. There are people watching what you do. And how you interact with other people. And if you, as a, as a person who claims to be a Christian, comes in and then acts in a way that is more negative than that person that is doing things against you, then you are not giving, you're not letting people see what real love is. And in the sight of all men, you have now made Christ look bad. You know, when, on the, when I was on the ship on the George Washington, we would, uh, every time the carrier would pull into a foreign port, and we pulled into a, a lot of them in Asia, whether it's Hong Kong, Singapore, Thailand, you know, Korea, all these other places, the, first, the main thing we would stress to all of these sailors is when you get off that ship, people are looking at you, and you represent the United States of America. You no longer just represent yourself, and you can do what you want, and, and you may get in trouble, but people don't care. But when you go out into town and you get in drunk and get in a fight, it's not going to be, oh, uh, an American and a Singaporean, uh, we're in a bar drinking and gotten it. It's going to be American sailors get in a fight and cause trouble in Singapore. And so everything you do is being watched and being looked at. And it's no different as Christians. We're called to be peace loving and people are watching how we handle those negative situations with other people. And when we handle them badly, we give Christ, we represent wrongly what Christ is in the world. 
Christ is a loving person who was willing to go to the cross for, with people who wrongly accused him and was willing to hang there and die for things he had never done. And yet we're not willing to back off because somebody says something that we don't like and is negative towards us and takes credit for something that we did. It's hard to do. This also harkens back once again to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 9 said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And then we go on to verse 19. This is not getting any easier. He says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is an exact quote from Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 35 says, Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will sleep, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. What's going on in Deuteronomy is the people is, is God is telling his people, hey, it's not up to you. Yes, nations are going to come against you, but it's it's let I will take care of those people. You, you don't have to worry about it, that I'm the one who can take vengeance on your behalf. And now Jesus makes it into a personal thing when he says uh, or Paul is making it into a personal thing here when he says vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And, you know, too many times it's hard to do that. Because I want revenge. I want to get even. I want, when that guy cuts me off in traffic, I don't want to think nice things about him. And I probably don't want to show him nice things out my window. Um, so I wouldn't do that, really. But, um, you know, too many times, I've, have you ever seen the person with the Jesus sticker on the back? And they're the ones that are, you know, some of the worst people in traffic. Um, so, you know, how we represent Christ is important. And we're... We're, we're told to leave it in God's hands. And then he goes on and shows us kind of how we're supposed to do that. He says, but if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wow, that's, that's hard to do. We're supposed to feed the person who hates us. We're supposed to give water to the person who, ha- who hates us. It kind of goes with what Jesus is saying. Remember when he tells his disciples, if you're told to go one mile, and this was in the day when the Roman soldiers could knock on your door and go, here, you're going to carry my pack a mile, go. He said, take it two miles just to show them the love of Christ. And he's saying here, you feed your enemy. You, 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 you give your enemy drink. And what will happen because of that? In so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Now, that's not what we're thinking. You know, you, okay, I'm going to do good to you because I, was, I just want to dump a bunch of coals on your head and make you burn. What it's talking about there is that it, it, it will give him shame and contrition. But that's on God to put that in his heart, not on us. It's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to treat him well. That's all. There, the best illustration of this is 1 Samuel 24, 27. What is happening here is, is Saul has gone into a cave to relieve himself. And, and David has, has, has actually, he, would, he and his men were hiding in the cave. Saul didn't know it. Saul snuck up, I mean, David snuck up behind Saul, cut off a little piece of his robe. And then David felt so bad about that that he actually, as, as, after Saul had left the cave, he called out to Saul and said, Saul, he said, I, I, I shouldn't have done this. I cut a piece of your robe off, but you're the, man, you're the king, you're the man of God. And, and I'm really sorry about that because I disrespected who you were as a king. And then um, in verse uh, in verse 27 of 1 Samuel 24, Saul says, he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you've dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. 
What is that? That's shame. That wasn't because David and David had the chance to kill him. In fact, David's men were like, David, just go kill him. You can become king. God's put him in your hands. And David's like, no, this is this is the wrong way to handle this. But because he treated his enemy better than his enemy who was trying to kill him and would have killed him as soon as looked at him better than what he was treated. He was able to give God the glory and actually make Saul focus on the fact of how he was sinning and mistreating David. Uh, Now we come to the last question, though. We've talked about love for the saints, love in the church, and love for those, even your enemies and those outside the church. That, as a human being, when I read those, I don't want to do it. and I can't do it. So how do I do that? It goes all back to Romans 12, 1 and 2. The only way we can do this is to do exactly what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What he's asking us to do seems impossible, and it is impossible unless you have given your life as a sacrifice to God as your reasonable act of worship. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us, that you love us, that you have called us down here to reflect you to the world by loving others. And whether it's people within the church or people outside of the church, even those that would hate us and would, and would, and would try to abuse us, Lord, we ask that you would empower us with your Holy Spirit to live the kind of life that would show others who you are and how much you love them through each of the way that we treat other people. We give you the praise and the honor and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.